back to Peace in Their Time, episode 48, Painting the Map. With the biggest of the British colonies squared away, today we're moving on to a grab bag of possessions that stretch across the globe. These will be the colonies, protectorates, and mandates that didn't come near the value of India, nor were entrusted with the political independence of the Dominions. The bulk of them were located in Africa, collected during the scramble for that continent, not just for profit, but also to keep them out of somebody else's hands. But there were also significant ones in Asia as well that deserve a little attention. I like to say that there's a clever through line between the places we're going to bounce around, but there really isn't. It's just a big-ass empire that was pieced together haphazardly and with no real mission statement beyond fueling the commerce of the UK. Its sheer vastness was both a benefit and a liability, as it gave the UK access to wealth, both human and material, that its future rivals could not match, but also stretched their own resources to the breaking point in trying to maintain it. Like India and the Dominions, these areas were what made Britain a world power, and what enabled it to fight the global war that was in the offing. I'm going to fully admit that as in previous episodes, this won't be a full history of these colonies, it will simply be context to how they factored into the British Empire at this narrow window of history and influenced decisions made back in London. Of the remaining imperial territories left to cover, Africa adds the most British red to the map, so we'll start there. Before World War I, the British focused mostly on actually securing these areas and getting the other powers to recognize the conquests as theirs. Once the Great War had been won and the question of overseas empire seemingly was settled, Britain would turn to actually try and properly exploit all this land they had snatched up. The first collection of territories to cover are West Africa. These included the non-continuous territories of the Gambia, Sierra Leone, the Gold Coast, modern-day Ghana, and Nigeria. In much of the empire, the British implemented a system referred to as indirect rule. What this meant was a small colonial administration, usually only a few dozen whites, would form the highest level of governance in the colony. From there, they would provide direction to the native Africans who had thrown in with the British, thus ensuring their power and making British rule seem more abstract than a tiny white minority lording it over the populace. This small governing body wasn't the only faction of whites in the colonies, though. Traders, workers, and servicemen all played their part in expanding British influence. And, for the most part, this system worked well for the British in West Africa, as well as elsewhere. The area didn't have too many easily accessible mineral resources, and the oil of Nigeria was a long way away from being discovered, as British attentions for that resource were focused in the Middle East. What the area did have were cash crops like palm oil, a classic staple of African plantations, as well as cocoa, coffee, and peanuts, which might not seem all that exciting, and it's really not, but it's important to note that Britain had direct access to basic kitchen goods that other powers, such as those that might be cut off from overseas trade in the event of war, didn't. And in a future age of total war, that isn't anything to scoff at. And since these areas in West Africa had reasonably direct access to the UK, they were pretty well plugged into the economy, and these cash crop plantations were well developed by the 1920s. A uh, little problem with that, though, and I should point out, these ever-expanding plantations were always hungry for more labor. And the word plantation really, really shouldn't conjure images of pleasant working conditions. Uh, much of the labor in the colonies were supplied by those local collaborators I mentioned, 
often by coercion. Africans went to great lengths to avoid working the fields and trees, and many would oftentimes try and flee to more remote areas. But not everyone could get away, and the exploitation was relentless. More and more land was commandeered for cash crops, and while this benefited the global north at the end of the export chain, it left Africans terribly vulnerable as it reduced the land available for growing real food. Basically the same situation I pointed out in India. It also meant during market downturns like what faced all of Europe in the early 20s, they were sitting on piles of agricultural goods that were useless to the local communities, yet couldn't be sold as the importing markets didn't have the money. Finally, there was the matter of education. For generations, missionaries had been supplying Western education to some among the African communities, and this was expanded somewhat as the colonies took firmer root, uh, never on a large scale, mind you. This spread of education gradually created a conscious African intelligentsia. Problem, though, the whites didn't stop being racist and discriminatory, so by the 20s there was a wave of strikes and protests coming from the African populace. The British were spared having to deliver significant concessions by the inexperience of African organizers in pushing such protest actions, which caused those early movements to fall apart. They were also helped by the consolidation of most of the important businesses in the region merging into a handful of companies. The bigger and more monolithic the companies became, the harder it would be to act against them by native workers. Still, governance at the local levels had to be delegated more and more to African decision-makers. And while those deciders would preferably be proven collaborators, it did show the limits of the tiny white minority. As colonies became more productive, more people were needed to manage them. But there were only so many Europeans available, and locals were increasingly brought on. East Africa was something of a different story. It was less plugged into the imperial system and often represented much less developed and more isolated territories. But they were different from West Africa for another reason. The climates in many places in East Africa were actually amenable to Europeans, which opened the door to direct settlement that was not considered possible in the West. Here, the colonies were running from South Africa northwards, Bechuanaland, modern Botswana, South and North Rhodesia, modern-day Zimbabwe and Zambia, respectively, Nyasaland, modern Malawi, Tanganyika, which was the new mandate taken from Germany and also modern Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya. Starting in Bechuanaland and the Rhodesias, I've already mentioned in episode 44 how the white communities there elected not to join in with South Africa. Notably in southern Rhodesia, enough white settlers had established themselves on farmsteads and ranches that they achieved autonomy for their colony, although it did not go as far as their neighbor to the south. The establishment of a white minority, about 5% of the local population at its peak, did have the tragic effect of the whites disenfranchising the African population as their own local privileges increased. This was less so in northern Rhodesia and Nyasaland, but settlement was also a lot less in those more isolated regions. There was also the establishment of numerous mining operations in the region, and while not quite the bonanzas of the South African gold and diamond mines, they drew in vast numbers of African labor, creating a startling change in lifestyle for local communities. The twin pressures of whites appropriating huge tracts of farmland and much of the local manpower going to work in the mines meant that the countryside left for the Africans was destitute, and both food shortages and disease ran rampant. 
The only silver lining was in mining areas in the more remote areas like northern Rhodesia, where there were far fewer white workers, and the black workforces could create unions and urban communities of their own without being disrupted. Uh, that didn't mean they were well off, but they came to be a nucleus of African empowerment in the area. Further north was Tanganyika, formerly German East Africa, as well as Uganda and Kenya. This area entered the 20s a complete shambles. The Germans had waged a highly effective campaign, and their army in the region was the last one to surrender in the war. To avoid being overwhelmed, the German army, around 15,000 men at its peak, and composed of both Germans and Africans, marched into the deep interior of the region and remained mobile, oftentimes crossing into the Entente colonies in the neighborhood to avoid being cornered. 140,000 colonial troops from all across Africa pursued them for four years. For both sides, supplying their troops meant commandeering what they needed from local farms and towns. The impact was severe on food supplies, and then a 1917 drought only made things worse. It is likely that hundreds of thousands of civilians died of starvation and disease brought on by the fighting. At Versailles, the UK was charged with providing the utmost care to the region and to ensure that its administration worked for the actual Africans living there. And the British were determined enough to demonstrate that the League of Nations mandate system worked for Tanganyika and encourage development in any way possible in order to shore up the devastated region. This included encouraging the old German business interests and settlers to stay on in order to help the area rebuild, giving native Africans a much stronger grip on economic life, and indeed half of all production in the mandate came from African-owned sources, which that's kind of actually an impressive figure for the time period, and it even attracted a quasi-management class of expat Indians. For Tanganyika, the 20s were mostly one of rebuilding the plantation networks similar to those found in West Africa. And like that region, the area saw the emergence of an educated segment of African society, one that also started laying the groundwork for long-term political empowerment. In Kenya, there existed conditions similar to southern Rhodesia, with a significant white minority primarily engaged in agriculture, with an added twist of an Indian minority also moving into the region and setting up businesses to compete with the Europeans in the towns. This friction during the 20s was largely settled, with political power being split between them and the colony, which favored the whites, but did not cut out the Indians entirely. The Africans, though, were again marginalized in their own homeland. The poor state of the African population there came back to haunt the British, as the 20s were a decade of economic contraction for the whites, as the needed African labor was not forthcoming, and the large farmsteads were mostly unproductive. Uganda, for its part, was quiet, and like much of Africa was converted to an economy based on cash crops such as cotton and rubber. Notable there was the emergence of a small industrial base, although this was still its relative infancy during the 20s. Overall, East Africa was more of a potential opportunity for the British Empire before the Depression, and while their contributions would be of marginal value in the 20s, they would be valuable resource producers down the road. The next region on our list is going to be the big one for this episode, Egypt. Well, strictly speaking, Egypt and the Sudanese condominium that the UK technically administered alongside Egypt. However, the reality was that the Sudan was very much so dominated by the British, as were the Egyptians themselves. Now, up to this point in the episode, Britain's holdings have been mostly valuable as places to acquire easy resources and maybe a little bit of manpower. Egypt's economic value, while not insignificant, was dwarfed by its strategic location. 
Situated at the southeastern corner of the Mediterranean, it was the location of the vital Suez Canal, that conduit that provided a massive shortcut on the route to India. Egypt's location meant that in order to properly protect India, it had to be kept out of the sphere of influence of any other major nation. To that end, in 1882, the British invaded Egypt and established a much-despised protectorate. I say much-despised because Egypt was unlike the colonial possessions further south. Whereas most of the sub-Saharan British possessions had divided political conditions that allowed Europeans plenty of parties to play against each other, Egypt famously was a land with one of the longest histories in the world, and conscious of that continuous identity. And despite the population being divided between a Muslim majority and Christian minority, and the land being nominally a province of the Ottoman Empire, none were too keen on accepting the rule of distant foreigners. The British did try to create a fiction that Egypt was still an autonomous unit within the Ottoman realm, and that they were merely advisors to the local government. But nobody was even for a moment fooled by this. In years past, the rulers of Egypt had gone into business for themselves, under a mostly autonomous ruler with the title of Qadi, and conquered Sudan for themselves, which, upon entering the area the British took partial ownership of, and over the years would muscle the Egyptians out of their own conquest. For the British, the objective in Egypt was simple. Restore the nation's financial footing and reestablish law and order, both of which had been decaying rapidly before the invasion. The fact that the Egyptian government was collapsing due to being under coercion to pay back loans to the Europeans was not lost on the populace. Tensions were further inflamed as the British in the area publicly overruled the Egyptian leadership. The British, though, pressed ahead, recreating Egypt into a land that would be productive for the UK. The crippling public debt was reduced, massive investments in agriculture were made, and the native army was recreated from scratch. The problem with these reforms, though, is that they were very much made from the top down, and from outsiders at that. The British issued orders, the natives followed them. There was little work done to create a viable administration or political system, and the racist attitudes of the British meant that education was not a high priority in the nation's transformation. The tension created by this high-handedness boiled over in 1906 when a British officer died during a police action in a village in the Nile Delta. Four villagers were tried in a British court and executed, and others sentenced to corporal punishment and hard labor. The growing Egyptian nationalist movement exploded in protest, and the British were caught at the back foot and implemented reforms to increase the Egyptian share of the administration and decision-making process. The nationalists, a populist movement wanting actual independence, signaled the reforms would not be enough and continued to be a thorn in the British side. This also created a new dynamic which was to play out in Egypt over the coming decades. The Khedive, still technically ruler of Egypt before World War I, was Abbas II, and he was wary of the nationalists. Sure, he wanted the British out, but maybe not at the cost of having to share political power with upstarts outside of his control. In any case, he didn't have long to dwell on the changing dynamic as his people's first political parties started organizing. He was deposed in late 1914 for being too pro-German, and as the Ottomans entered World War I against the British, he was seen as quite the liability. And with the outbreak of war, Egypt became the home base for British military operations in the region, and after a Turkish excursion towards the Suez, he even came to be on the front lines. The British declared the country independent of the Ottoman Empire, and placed the uncle of Abbas, 
Hussein Kamal as the first sultan, uh, though he didn't last long and was replaced by his brother Fuad I, who will have much more of an impact. The war put a hold on British efforts at reforming the country, and every resource in Egypt was directed to the war effort. While the nationalists were not terribly enthusiastic, they saw cooperation as a means towards autonomy, and so the nation largely complied with its overlord's wishes during the conflict. Unfortunately, this gave the British the impression that all was well, and that public opinion had swung around to favoring a continuation of the occupation. Uh, how they actually convinced themselves of this idea, I just, yeah, I don't know. But just two days after Armistice Day, a delegation of opposition politicians organized themselves into a group called the Wat. Under the leadership of Saad Zaglul, they requested the British grant Egypt its real independence. The British said no, of course, and the Wat started organizing protests. The situation became chaotic enough that Zaglul was arrested and sent to Malta, which only turned the demonstrations across Egypt into riots. By April 1919, Zaglul had been released and was allowed free travel to Europe to make his case. However, his showing at the Paris Peace Conference produced no results and demonstrated the ideals of self-determination being discussed there wouldn't be applying to his people. Back at home, Egypt had not calmed down, and officials on the ground were scrambling for a solution. Zaglul, though, wouldn't budge from his demand of the British leaving, and in 1920 was again arrested, this time being exiled to the Seychelles Islands, southeast of Somalia. Exile hadn't done the trick before, and it didn't do it now, and the demonstrations continued. Finally, on February 18, 1922, the British declared their protectorate dissolved. Conditionally, that is. The British retained the rights of communication and transit through the country, they would also continue to be the nation's protectors, meaning there would be a military presence, as well as the protectors of the interests of all nationalities doing business there, and the UK would also be staying in Sudan as administrators. If broadly interpreted, these conditions could open the way to reimposing British rule, and eventually that's just what happened. But for now, at least, Egypt was loosed from the prospect of joining the other protectorates of Africa and becoming a colony. This fragile independence called for some political changes as well. Fuad switched his title from sultan to king. More meaningfully, a constitution was established. A two-house parliament was created, with a familiar chamber of deputies and a senate, although two-fifths of the senate were direct appointments of the king. Fuad was also given other powers, like being able to remove ministers, including the prime minister, as well as shutting down parliament entirely which wasn't great for democracy because Fuad was very much an autocrat and did everything he could to undermine the Constitution. The democratic reforms were the classic kind, designed to placate the populace while keeping power in the hands of an autocrat. While the Waft and other nationalist groups were very much opposed to the king's powers, there was constitutionally not a lot they could do, which had been the point when the document was drafted. Keeping the Waft out of power was very much in the king's and British interests. Now, I've talked about the Waft mainly as a resistance group so far, but they were an actual political party by this point, and a fairly moderate one at that. They were composed of the educated and middle classes, people not part of the elites, but also not among the proletariat. They drew their popularity mostly from their insistence on independence, all the while intending to implement fairly middle-of-the-road policies once in power. But the trick, of course, was getting into power. At first, it seemed straightforward. Zaglul was released in 1923, and the first elections held in January 1924. 
the Waft won in a landslide, and Zaglul became Prime Minister. Predictably, for the time he was in office, he and the king were at an impasse as far as governance went. In November 1924, though, commanding British general in Egypt was assassinated by nationalists. The British blamed Zaglul and demanded Egypt pay an indemnity, withdraw from the Sudan entirely, and prohibit future political protests in the streets. Yeah, that was a fast return to the days of British ultimatums. Zaglul was forced to resign, and the Egyptians caved to the demands. Furthermore, the new government, favorable to the king, started raising voting requirements to curb waft influence. When even this wasn't enough in the elections held in March 1925, the king simply dissolved the new parliament on the same day it assembled, and appointed his men in its place. This began a long struggle between the king and the Waft, who, under Zaglul until his death in 1927, would struggle to check the king's powers. The British, meanwhile, would lean back and enjoy playing the two factions against each other. The king needed the backing of the British to hold the Waft at bay, something that Fuad was acutely aware of. Closing out the 20s, Egypt was divided, which suited the British, and the imperial interests in the region were blessedly secure for the time being, even as Egypt was wracked by political turmoil internally. But anyway, we're now onto the homeward stretch of this episode, and it's time to hop over to Asia. The first notable holding was the island of Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka. Despite its proximity to the Raj, it was not lumped in with that particular unit and maintained its own administration. British rule there was similar to that of the mainland, though, and they leaned on a conservative elite as collaborators to act as their conduit to the rest of the people there. That being said, the smaller size and population of the island meant the dependency on collaboration wasn't as great as in India, which meant that the leaders of Ceylon were far less politically engaged. But what really set those elites apart from other areas, though, was how westernized they had become. Various Western European nations had been setting up shop on the island for centuries, and the British were only the last ones to do so, which meant Ceylon had a lot more per capita exposure to European culture. The island was quiet for the period, and I mention it mainly for two things. One, being that the island provided a great naval base in the central Indian Ocean, and the other being it produced a huge amount of rubber, both items of great importance for the future. Especially the rubber, as by the dark days of 1942, it provided 60% of the Allied supply of that vital resource. Nearby, Burma was a contrast to the tranquility the British enjoyed in Ceylon. Known in the modern day as Myanmar, Burma shared a very similar fate to that of Egypt. It was once an independent kingdom, but in the later 1800s, internal weaknesses threatened the nation. Again, taking the safety of India into consideration, the British preemptively annexed the country to prevent other Europeans from getting a foothold there. And also, let's face it, by this point, the British had kind of an addiction to collecting land that they didn't necessarily need. Anyway, there was some resistance, and the geography of the country prevented a rapid takeover. Burma is marked by combinations of jungles, swamps, hills, mountains, and large rivers. Its climate was brutal, and its development inland was primitive at best, and non-existent for much of the land at the time. And its population was about as cooperative, which makes sense because the British were very much open conquerors in this case. Unlike in Egypt, the traditional power structures were not kept around for collaboration. The British ruled as they saw fit. They attached Burma for a time to the Raj, but it was never a welcome addition, either by the British in India or the Indians themselves. The land was isolated by harsh geography and culturally was separate from that of the subcontinent, something that was finally admitted by the British when they spun it off in 1937. 
The British did open Burma up economically, although this brought its own issues. One of Burma's most vital economic products was rice. The country's long river valleys and correspondingly rich soil made it a breadbasket for the region. Rice was exported all over, but was especially important in India, as it helped alleviate shortages in periods of drought, which it would be a real shame if those supplies were ever disrupted for any reason, like, say, another imperial party conquering the area. Oh well. The close connection with India also meant that a community of businessmen and workers from there also established themselves. They were not terribly popular, as the businessmen would go into the money-lending racket and offer loans at high levels of interest, and then quickly foreclose when they could not be paid back. Incoming Indian workers, for their part, would snap up jobs in the rice plantations, as they were willing to work for lower wages the Burmese would not accept. The exposure to the greater world economy badly disrupted Burmese society as well. The peasants steadily lost access to the best land as it was consolidated into plantations, and native Burmese were largely locked out of all the commerce that had arisen with the expansion of those plantations. The British, at various points, made attempts similar to that in India of devolving some governance to the Burmese, but found few enthusiastic collaborators. All through the 20s, nationalist movements would start to coalesce in opposition to their invaders, although it would only be in the 30s that the situation would turn violent. Finally, the last area I'll be covering is Malaya, modern Malaysia. Geographically, it was split between the mainland portion of the Malay Peninsula and the northern part of the island of Borneo. Like Ceylon, it had been exposed to European influences for centuries, and its elites used the British to maintain their own place in society. There were important divisions, though. Because the lands were rich in both mineral and rubber resources, huge numbers of Chinese and Indians moved into the area, upsetting the established communities there. The Chinese were particularly a cause of concern for the local elites, as they maintained contact back home and both the Kuomintang and Chinese Communist Party had an intense interest to keep influence with the expat community. There was also the island of Singapore, which, after World War I, was singled out as the future bastion of the empire in Southeast Asia. Plans for the island called for a vast naval base, capable of supporting the entire Royal Navy, as well as a fortress so well defended that it would be impossible to storm. This was born from the ending of the Anglo-Japanese alliance and the realization that the only remaining threat in the region was Japan. Conditions during the 20s, though, meant there wasn't much urgency, and little was done to develop it during these years. The crisis years of the 30s would add some urgency, but the fortress was never quite completed. Alright, that about covers the major areas of the British Empire. I left out some areas like the Caribbean and the Pacific Archipelagos, but what I described here were the big ones for our narrative. It's a vast empire, really too overstretched for its own good. Even with all its colonies and dominions, the UK can only really effectively respond to a major threat coming from one direction, and the world in these years was starting to become more dangerous than just one threat. It didn't help that all those developments to better access resources just screamed out for an aggressor to make a move and take it for themselves. But the vastness did have some benefit, in that it was nearly impossible to disassemble the whole thing, and the access to material and human resources kept the nation going, and the dispersed territories meant the British had bases everywhere. Now, I know you're probably wondering about the Middle East, and don't worry, we'll cover the joint British and French disasters there in a few episodes. For the next two weeks, though, we'll be taking a look at the French Empire, as well as a brief look at the Dutch East Indies. 
If this all seems a bit overwhelming, you know, with all the sheer variety of places we're covering, take heart, there is a point to that. The Europeans both derived power from these empires, but were in turn tied down by their responsibility to them. The colonies were constant distractions, but their benefits meant they couldn't be neglected. And plus, those Europeans and their native allies would wind up doing a lot of fighting and dying in these places. So it's just good context to understand what the heck they were doing in these places, and why they were willing to do all that dying. Next week, we'll drop in on French North Africa, only briefly a battleground in 1942 and 43, but a gigantic piece on France's geopolitical board. Plus, I'll toss in the Dutch, if only to explain what they were doing in the West Pacific when the Japanese came knocking. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.